I should, yeah, good morning. Okay. So this, um, this series is about people that have inspired us. And um, the person that's inspired me that I want to talk to you about, just a bit about him first, um, he was a murderer, uh, he was a liar, he was an adulterer, um, <laughs> which might seem a little bit odd. He was also the person that, that led Israel and, and Judah um, into their greatest period of history ever. Uh, he's also somebody whose exploits, even now, probably 2,700 years later, still get quoted in a whole variety of domains. Um, often he's quoted, or, or, or this, his kind of exploits get, get quoted in the newspaper and people use his stories. Um, and he's somebody who, out of those really di- adverse conditions that he faced, even now we still read some of the scriptures that he wrote, some of the songs he wrote, and they're still inspiring and moving people um, two and a half, 2,700 years later. Who am I talking about? Yeah, King David. Thank you. <laughs> and basically, <laughs> close. <laughs> And what I want to talk to you about is, um, I suppose, uh, some aspects of his life that, are, that I found particularly inspiring over, over a number of years. Firstly, for me, he's somebody that lived with tremendous tension and paradox in his life. And, and I think as Christians, that's, that's almost part of, of what we have to live with. Real tension and paradox, which can be difficult. And he's somebody that I, I see living with that paradox um, and handling it well. Um, and I'm going to look, look in particular at three tensions and paradox that I think are relevant to us today, and particularly relevant to us as a church, where, where we are in our journey. And then I want to move, move on to look at three practices, three traits that I believe um, he used and cultivated that helped him to flourish in the mix of real paradox and tension in his life, which again I think are highly relevant today. And for me, the first tension which he lived with was the tension of, on the one hand, having huge promise spoken over him, huge prophecy, but on the other hand, having to live with huge pain in his life, which again I think is, is, is quite relevant for us. So just to... Um, read some scripture that actually uh, gives us some insight into that. I mean, mean, the context for the scripture I'm about to read is the first king of Israel, the first king anointed by God, Saul, basically has systematically uh, failed to do what God asked him to do. And, 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 And quite dramatically, God has said, I am rejecting you as king. He's still in, in, in power, but he, but spiritually he's lost his authority. And, um, and the big kind of major prophet of the day, the sort of mega prophet who, kind of, who had to deliver this message to him, is basically moping around, feeling really kind of upset about, you know, where's the nation going? Um, you've made it very clear that you've rejected the king. Where's the nation going? And if you look in 1 Samuel 16, this is where I want to pick up the story with David in terms of some of the huge promise that was spoken over his life. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse or Jess of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. I'm going to come on to talk about the paranoia and the, and the insecurity of Saul as a leader and how that impacted David's life. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jess to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. <laughs> Sign of his power and uh, the, I suppose the respect in which he was held. They asked, you come in peace? I guess when the prophet turned up, it was potentially a worrying moment. Uh, <laughs> Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jess and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've, I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And basically this, this sort of string of sons get paraded in this sort of beauty contest before Samuel and none of them are the one. Um, so uh, Samuel says to Jess, is, is this the lot? And he says, um, no, they're still the youngest, but he's looking after the sheep. I didn't even think it was worth bringing him kind of thing. Um, and Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So I imagine somebody trots off to the, you know, a couple of miles down the the hillside, gives them a tap on the shoulder and says, you're wanted, little bruv. Um, And up he trots. And he appears. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. Here's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. I mean, that for me, it's, it's estimated that he was probably age 15 when that happened. I mean, clearly in that society, people, when they became teenagers, almost became men. But um, I mean, at age 15, imagine having that level of promise spoken over you, that, that level of prophecy. I mean, that for me is a huge thing for people to hold, that level of almost greatness which was spoken over him. And... I mean, the fact that he had to live with that for a huge number of years before it actually came to realisation is something that I find sort of pretty inspiring. And in the period of waiting, I mean, it took seven years before he became the king of Judah, but the actual promise was for him to become the king of Israel, which actually took another eight years. So he was basically sat with that promise for 15 years uh, before it actually came to pass. And I think sitting with big promises that get spoken over your life is, is, a, is a difficult thing for anybody to do. And um, I find it inspiring that, that he did. And yet for him to sit with that, and here's the other end of the tension that he had to sit with, he actually went through huge amounts of pain in that process of, of, of that promise coming to realisation. I mean, it, things started well. Um, I mean, it, it appears that very quickly after that, he, he became the personal harpist for the king, um, and, and, it, and he did well. Uh, I mean, if we look in 1 Samuel 16, 21 to 23, am I in the right place? Yes, I, yes, I am. Um, 
It actually says that, you know, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much. You know, David became one of his armor bearers. So his role kind of immediately grew. So things are starting quite nicely. Um, Saul sent a word to his dad saying, allow David to stay in my service for I'm really pleased with him. So, you know, things start really well for him in terms of this, this journey to realizing this promise. Um, and it continued to get better. I mean, the biggest problem that Israel faced at that time was an almighty giant of a man called Goliath. And basically the army were scared stiff of him. And David, despite being 15 and, and, and really a, you know, a boy, um, he basically stepped up and said, I'll fight him. And they all mocked him and said, you know, surely that's not possible. You're a boy. You know, he's, he's a fighting man. He's been fighting for many years. And he basically steps up and, um, and he solves this massive problem. Uh, and their fortunes start to turn around. So things are going well. 1 Samuel 18, 5. Uh, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. So things are really kind of going quite, quite well to start with. Um, but then things start to turn. And I guess this is the problem when people do start to flourish, is that it does cause some people to be threatened by that, particularly if you're a leader of that person. And if you look at 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 9, it says there, uh, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, you know, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. I mean, you can just imagine the scene. It's real sort of celebration. You know, Spain coming back from having, you know, with the World Cup. It's those kind of scenes. Everyone's out singing and dancing. And this is the song they sung. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Uh-oh. <laughs> so basically they're exalting somebody in the army above the king of the nation, the king of the army. And Saul was very angry. The refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And, um, I mean, for me, one of the things this speaks about is, is the fact that insecure leaders can be a real curse to the people that they lead. I, mean, I think of some of the places I've worked in uh, over the years, and I've worked with people who, who were quite insecure. And, and, of course, what tends to happen is everything gets dumbed down to a level of, of excellence, a level of operation that they feel comfortable with and that doesn't threaten them. And suddenly it's not okay to flourish in that environment because it threatens them and they don't like that. And that, for me, is... Um, I mean, if you are in a position of leadership, either here or, or outside of the church, for me, there's, there's some real lessons here in terms of how do you react when you do feel threatened by somebody? You know, maybe somebody is better than you at something, which is going to be inevitable at some point. Um, and in one sense, the mark of a good leader is they can actually live with somebody who is better than them. Better than them. They can nurture them. And actually, of course, what happens is they grow. They, they float with the tide of their greatness and their success. Um, and they bathe in the glory of it. But, which, so there's a benefit of it. But, of course, in that moment of insecurity, often what people do is they think, I'm not having David... Um, flourishing in this way, and they basically end up pushing somebody down. And everything starts to get compressed and become much smaller. And 
for me, there, there's a lesson here if, you know, for, for people that are in positions of leadership to actually take responsibility for yourself when you do feel that sense of being threatened by somebody. Because it's going to happen. Sooner or later, it is going to happen. And the question is, what do you do with it? And for me, the, the responsible leader um, actually takes responsibility for it and starts to think, okay, well, what's, you know, what's causing this? What is it about me that's being stirred up here by somebody flourishing that I need to deal with it? And, and, it, and, and for me, what you see is they either manage it or it manages them. Which, um, and in this case, it managed Saul. He never, I mean, he tried, he made a few attempts to try and get on top of it. He didn't. And in the end, it started to dominate his entire life. His entire life became focused on killing, killing David because he, he perceived him as a threat. So basically what happens is, and this is where the pain really starts to uh, start, is, um, is David basically flees for his life. He, he's left with no choice. Twice Saul tries to kill him. Um, when he's playing the harp you know, and sort of calming him down, he has to dodge a couple of spear attacks, uh, <laughs> which, which he does successfully. Um, but um, basically, despite having had this promise of you're going to be king, huge thing, huge responsibility to carry, what he, ends, what he finds up is he basically spends four or five years on the run in the desert going from place to place, and his life is really quite miserable. I mean, just a couple of psalms, a few verses from some psalms where, you know, which capture that, which just, just the desperation that he felt. Psalm 6, verses 3 to 7. And this, for me, is one of the things that really inspires me about David, is just, just the way that even in real kind of adversity, just feeling cheesed off, neglected by God, he writes some, some beautiful songs and poetry that even now just I find inspirational. So Psalm 6, verses 3 to 7. You know, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from his grave? I'm worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. I mean, this is not a happy man. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's struggling. Psalm 13, verses 1 to 2. Similar Similar kind of verses. You know, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day of sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I mean, this is someone who's, who's living with a lot of pain. Despite that huge promise, he's in that paradox of, actually, it hasn't happened. Actually, what's happened is huge suffering. And... Um, I mean, I do believe that when we hold on to God's promises for us, either individually and, and, and collectively as a community, um, I think often there is a journey of pain involved in, in, in the realisation of those promises. Um, the pain of waiting, the pain of often disappointment, the pain of confusion, of trying to work out what on earth God is doing. And, um, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I... I, I feel huge respect for, for people like Leon and the leaders of this church who are, I think, collectively on our behalf holding a huge promise of, of us being a, a much, having a much bigger presence and influence in this town, even though the, the journey to reaching there is, is, is far from uncertain. And, I mean, we've had some big disappointment with, you know, with funding we didn't get, 
Um, it's, been a, it's been a difficult journey already. And I think holding a big promise and living in the tension of the pain of the journey sometimes, as well as the successes, I think that takes real character and, um, and strength, which is why I've got a lot of respect for, for you guys in, in holding that, and also for, feel real pride being part of this church as a community that has stepped up and is prepared to make a huge sacrifice um, to see that promise fulfilled, even though there isn't a clear route map. You know, I'm not con- certain how we're going to get from where we are now to where we are there. I'm holding on to the promise. <laughs> I believe it's going to happen. Um, and I'm fairly convinced there's going to be a lot more pain on the journey. <laughs> hey! <laughs> and that's inspiration for you. <laughs> what I'm going to come on to look at is, is three things that I think David did that helped him, sustained him to actually hold that, that pain of the journey. I think one of the other tensions, tension number two, paradox number two that he lived in is the paradox of the one hand holding his greatness as a person and on the other hand being really honest about the fact that he was totally flawed as an individual, <laughs> which is why I kind of introduced it in the way that I did. I mean, he was a murderer, he was a liar, he was an adulterer, but also he was, he was a fantastic warrior. I mean, this person... Uh, I mean, he fought bears and lions and killed them while he was looking after his father's sheep. Um, when he was offered Saul's daughter in marriage, um, the king, you know, he, 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 David said to him, you know, it's no small thing for me, basically a, far, a, a, a farmer and shepherd, to become the king's son-in-law. There's got to be some sort of price involved. And, and Saul said to him, basically, get, uh, kill a hundred Philistines thinking that what was going to happen was David would get killed and that would be his problem um, sorted. What actually happens is he takes a band of his men and he goes and kills 200 Philistines. <laughs> um, I mean, this person was a fantastic warrior. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, I mean, as a leader, he, he was somebody that, that was clearly a, a, a powerful leader. I mean, if you look in 1 Samuel 18, even in the desert, so that he's on the run, um, he's being chased by, by the king. So you could argue he's probably not, not the best person you'd want to follow um, in those circumstances. Um, but what actually happens is, you know, he's going from place to place. Um, he's escaped to a cave. His brothers and his father's household heard about it, and they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. I mean, he clearly was somebody that, that could lead and inspire people. He had, in that sense, he was great. He was also, I mean, as a worshipper of God in the very broad sense of the word, I mean, he was somebody that, that was unquestionably great. He wrote some phenomenal psalms. I mean, many of them were birthed in deep adversity. Probably a third of the psalms um, out of the 150 come from David. I mean, some of them just, I mean, Psalm 139 about uh, how, how God knit us together in his mother's womb and this beautiful imagery, um, the way that he pursued God, often at huge personal sacrifice. I mean, there was no question about him. I mean, God describes him as somebody after my own heart. Huge greatness, but also he was absolutely flawed as well. 
I mean, if you, if you turn to, to um, 1 Samuel 21, I mean, he was prone to lying and deceiving people. <laughs> so he's on the run. He goes to a place called Nob, um, to, and, he, and he's speaking to Achimelech, the priest. Achimelech trembled when he met him. Um, obviously, his reputation's gone before him and says, you know, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered, oh, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know about anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. All complete lies. He's basically on the run from the king and he tricks the priest into helping him. What happens? I mean, the consequences are, are utterly disastrous. Saul finds out, verse 16 to 19, uh, turns up to the place. The king says to him, you are surely going to die, you and your father's whole family. The king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they've, they too have sided with David. And it, basically David has tricked them into, into it. Um, and then the king orders Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day, he killed 85 men. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women and children, infants, cattle, donkeys. Basically, the whole lot get killed. Why? Because David basically lied, lied and tricked him into, into helping him. So, I mean, this person was, despite that greatness, on the one hand, he also was was fundamentally flawed. I mean, if you fast forward um, to, two, to 2 Samuel 11, he's now, he, he's now enthroned. Um, this, I mean, this is, this is a well-known story, but it's, um, it, it's such a sad story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they were fighting, but David remained in Jerusalem. <laughs> um, I mean, I can just imagine the scene. Um, David probably said, I want to come and join you, know, join you on in, in the fighting season. And I can imagine all his advisors saying, no, no, it's far too risky for you, the king. You know, did, they did a risk assessment. You stay at home. <laughs> you know, we can't have the king getting hurt. Um, and he gets tricked into you know, he, he, he kind of goes along with it. Um, so he's at a bit of a loose end. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and he saw a beautiful woman. The woman was, um, yeah, and David sent someone to find out about her. The men said, it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. Problem, I mean, that problem number one. Problem number two, the, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And of course, this is often what happens when you start um, lying and committing one, doing one thing that's wrong. Suddenly, it, start, it leads to other things that you can't see at the time. And you end up suddenly getting sucked into this, this much bigger chain of, of um, sin, problems. Um, so what does he do? He, he, he then thinks, flipping out, you know, what am I going to do? So, so he, he sends for her husband who's fighting, basically brings him back and hopes that he will sleep with her. And then they'll think it's, it's his child. But he doesn't bank on the fact that he's a man of honor. So he comes back from the war and he refuses to go and sleep with his wife. He basically sleeps in, it sounds like he sleeps in the courtyard of his home. And David calls him back the next day and said, you know, you've been away for a long time, why don't you sleep with your wife? And he said, how could I? He said, all my men are fighting 
um, this battle, how on earth could I go and sleep with my wife? Well, they're out there suffering, many of them dying. I'm just not going to do it. So, <laughs> so, so he has to um, think again. He invites him round for, uh, for dinner that night. He gets him drunk, uh, hoping that with the influence of alcohol, his willpower will be weakened. Um, it isn't. He still refuses to sleep with his wife. So he then basically writes a note, gives the note to Uriah, sends him back to the battle, and the note basically says... Uh, to the commander of the armies, place me in the fiercest part of the fighting and then tell the army to withdraw. <laughs> so in effect, he writes his death certificate and that's what happens. Um, I mean, it's just a, an utterly horrific story. And um, I mean, that sense of living with the tension of on the one hand, greatness and, um, and on the other hand, actually embracing your, the fact that you're flawed. Um, I think it's something that um, many people... Well, I, I don't know many people who can do both, who can embrace their greatness and the things where they really excel and shine, and, on the other hand, they can be really honest and, and, and open about their, their, their flaws. And yet I believe there's real strength in that, and I'll come on to that in a, in a moment. And for me, the third thing that, that, he, that, that, that David embraces, which, which I think is highly relevant to us today, I think there is this real tension between, on the one hand, the, the tension of depending on God for whatever it is that you feel is your kind of purpose in life and what it is that you really want to see happen. And on the other hand, deploying your skill, your natural abilities, um, and, and, and your cunning, if you like, to actually make that happen. And typically what I see is people swinging one way or the, or the other. So I think at the one extreme, you've got what I call the supers, you know, the super spirituals, where it's, it's everything's about God and you know, I'm just going to trust God. I mean, we've just come to exam season and exam results. I mean, this is a classic kind of you know, time, I'm trusting God for my exam results. You know. But on the other hand, you've got people, what I call the, you know, the grafters, uh, where it's all about working. Um, to try and make something happen. And there's no sense of God being involved in that. Um, and, I, and I see David as somebody who, who did kind of embrace those two extremes. So, I mean, on the one hand, um, I mean, one of the things that, that, that is really common in Scripture, I mean, in 1 Samuel 23, he's, you know, he's facing this dilemma of, do I go into battle against this, this particular group? And what he does is he basically seeks God. You know, Lord, sh- shall I go and strike them or do I basically run away? Um, and and God's, you know, he, he senses God saying, yep, go and strike them. So that's, that, that's what he does. Um, and then he, he, he takes this town and then he inquires of God, um, are the people in this town going to give me over to Saul? And the Lord says, yep, they are. So he basically legs it. <laughs> um, but there's that real sense of seeking God um, for the big decisions in his life. But on the other hand, I think he employs real kind of skill and effort and cunning to actually bring about what, uh, what he believes is God's, God's purpose in his life. Uh, I mean, just, just to give you an example of this, 1 Samuel 30, verses 26. In fact, basically what happens is he's just, he's just won a major battle and um, 
He's got huge amounts of plunder from, you know, from the people they've killed. And what he does is, what he decides to do, uh, which I think is a really politically astute move, given that he knows he's been anointed as king and that at some point he's, going to be, he's holding on to this promise that he's going to be king, what he does is he basically sends out... Um, in fact, let's read it, 26 to 31, 1, 1 Samuel 30. So what he does is, yeah, um, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a present from you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And, he, and it lists all the places that he sends it. And in effect, what he's doing is, he's basically warming up these people to him becoming king. So yeah, on the one hand, there is this dependence on God. On the other hand... You know, he's not being stupid about it. He's recognizing that if he's going to become king, he needs to engage all his stakeholders and get them on board. And he seems to kind of get this balance between being deeply spiritual and dependent on God on the one hand, but also working really hard and using all of his natural abilities on the other and to steer that line of of having a dynamic relationship with God, which um, I think it's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I find that inspiring. And I guess the, I mean, a good question to ask is, you know, what, what's your tendency? Do you tend to err towards the super spirituality? You know, it's all about God. You know, I'm not going to um, do the work. Or is it, actually, I'm just going to make this happen on my own strength? I know my tendency is very much this, this latter piece. You know, and suddenly realize I haven't prayed about a major decision. But I've been doing all the kind of working and thinking and talking to people and... Um, <laughs> And one of the reasons I find David so inspirational in terms of his ability to live with that paradox and that tension is because I I know from experience that as Christians, we have to live with that paradox and tension a lot of the time in our life. I mean, just a few examples. You know, we have a God that can heal. We know that. Many of us probably know it experientially from people that we've prayed for, and yet we live with death and sickness all the time. That's a tension and a paradox. We've got a God who knows the future, yet on the other hand gives you completely free will. How do you work that one out? <laughs> um, <laughs> we know from Scripture, you know, from the experience of salvation, that the power of Christ is alive in me. And yet I'm fundamentally flawed as well. <laughs> and I don't know many people who aren't. <laughs> um, there's so many, and that's just, just three off the, top, off, the, off the top of my head. There are so many paradoxes and tensions that we have to live with as Christians. Um, and I think David kind of demonstrates um, a way of doing that that I think is, well, it inspires me. How did he do it? Three things really quickly. And, um, and then I'll wind things up. I think one of the things that, that David for me, demonstrated um, throughout his life, which I think as a practice and a habit that helped him to live with that that, that tension, is he had a deep sense of integrity. Despite the fact he was flawed, I think he lived his life with a deep sense of integrity. By that I mean he was true to his word, true to his values, true to what he believed was the purpose of his life, even when it hurt. And that isn't something that just happens that kind of level of integrity requires a degree of self-examination, a degree of self-knowing that doesn't just happen. It requires effort. I, mean, I find it fascinating that when you look at most of the major leaders in the Bible, virtually all of them 
prior to moving into their greatness, whether it was Moses, whether it was Jesus, whether, whether it was David, they all spent a significant amount of time in the desert beforehand. And the desert is basically, I mean, for me, it's a symbol of nothingness. All the kind of nice things that make your life comfortable, you know, your Starbucks coffees and, you know, all things, all stripped away. You kind of meet yourself in a way that you never do when you've got all that comfort around you. And, and that, I believe, I mean, that, that period of, horrible period for him, but I believe it's a period that laid a foundation of integrity in his life that served him for many years. I mean, just to give an example of this, Psalm 13, verses 3 to 5. I mean, I, I find this impressive. I mean, he actually says, he's saying to God, though you probe my heart and examine me at night, though you test me, you'll find nothing. I've resolved that my mouth will not sin. Um, I mean, it goes on, talks about that. that that's a big thing to be able to say. Um, I wish I could say that. I know that I can't. Um, but that sense of self-examination. And part of that, for me as well, is, is admitting that, that you're wrong. A huge part of having integrity is, is when you realise you're wrong about something, is actually having the courage, not to fudge it, but to honestly and to cleanly acknowledge that. And again, that for me, I mean, David, um, it just inspires me in the way that he did that. I, mean, I, I gave you the story of him and Bathsheba. I mean, if you turn to 2 Samuel 12, I mean, here's an example. I mean, he, he, you know, he tries to cover it up, understandably, because it's a pretty horrible aspect of yourself to have to admit. And um, he thinks he's doing a reasonable job of hiding it. But then, of course, the prophet Samuel rocks up and um, has a word with him. Sorry, Nathan. Samuel's died at this point. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he brought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. (laughs) And then he he talks about what's going to happen to him. You know, and David says to him at the end, I've sinned against the Lord. You know, we know from two or three Psalms, Psalm 51, it's just completely honest in saying, I have sinned. And that, for me, that sense of integrity that, um, that he had, um, even when he got it wrong, actually being willing to complete, be completely open about it, I think is, a, is a, a key strength in managing that tension. That, that's number one. Number two, the second, I think, key practice or or um, attribute, if you like, to cultivate, which I think David, for me, embodies and which helps live in that tension of being a Christian is deep authenticity and humility, both with God and with others. Um, What I'm talking about here is saying it as it is. And for me, David was great at doing that. 
I mean, it's saying what I would call the unsayable. So if you look at Psalm 10, I'm sure all of us have thought this, verse 1, but David says it. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? (laughs) Ever felt that? (laughs) I certainly have. You know, you're praying, things seem to be, you know, we talked about the hurricane and the storm. And sometimes there is that sense of just God not being with you, not seeming to listen to your prayers, not seeming to respond. Um, David is great at actually naming it and just being completely honest with God. And I know there's something within me that wants, doesn't want to admit that. <laughs> I don't want to see, I, I'm almost afraid of saying it. Um, but David said it as it was. You know, in Psalm 58, uh, he, he talks about um, almost what he would like to see happen to some of his enemies. You know, and, I mean, I'm not going to read it, but I mean, it, the, the context is it's written in a medieval society where butchery and you know, murder is commonplace. You know, he talks about how great it's going to be to, you know, to bathe our feet in our enemy's blood as it runs down the street, and that's my prayer, Lord. And you, <laughs> you think, flipping out, you know, I haven't had many people from Zion pray like that. <laughs> but there's that sense of just utter honesty with God. And I suspect with others as well, which as a way of dealing with often the confusion, the pain, I, I think it's, it's essential. Because you can only pretend for so long <laughs> that, you, you know, you, that you aren't disappointed with God when you are or um, you know, s- s- something like that. And a third thing that I think David for me embodies is, is just that the habit or the practice of gratitude. It's easy when times are good. You know, when things are going well, I find it very easy to be grateful. It's so much harder in the tough times, um, and it's not instinctive. Most people aren't going to naturally be grateful when they feel they're having a tough time, they're disappointed. And yet one of the things that, that, that David um, embodies for me is, is that he does, you know, he does that. Um, I mean, if you look at Psalm 13, which I read earlier, or the first three verses, you know, it's just so tough. You know, how long, Lord? How long do I have to wait? How long before you move? Why have you rejected me? And yet, Psalm, verse 5 and 6, it actually finishes up with him thanking and being, you know, expressing gratitude for God, to God for what he has got. I, I, well, I, I find that inspiring. Why is it so important? I think when you start to express gratitude, even when things are tough, you know, not gratitude for the fact that life is horrible, but or you know, or a particular situation is is really difficult, but gratitude for what uh, you know what is happening in your life or what has happened, I think it changes your perspective. And not only that, it changes your mood. I mean, I've noticed within me when I start. Uh, beginning to, to, to search for things I feel grateful for and, and saying it out loud, I start to feel differently. Um, and suddenly I start to have more openness to the Spirit. <laughs> and, I mean, what's interesting is, um, one of the things I find, find interesting is that um, there's been a lot of books published in the last five or six years on happiness. You know, how do you become happy? And organizations have started to, 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 to hook onto this because there's a lot of research that shows that people that generally tend to be happier tend to be more resilient. People that are more resilient tend to be, uh, have less health problems. They tend to have less time off work. And um, did, it, did anyone see a program called Making Slough Happy? 
It's a BBC program. It was based, I mean, the government have hooked onto this. And um, about six years ago, they did a mapping exercise trying to work out where were the happiest places to live. Um, on the grounds that obviously, I mean, if you think of it on a national scale, if you can increase the happiness of a certain place, then the impact on, you know, on, he- on costs, health costs, there's going to be an impact. And the unhappiest place to live in Britain was, was Slough, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a team of psychologists went in, and um, they asked for people who'd be sort of uh, who'd be willing to be part of a pilot um, to to, to um, experiment with different things, which they thought would make people happier. And um, it became part of a BBC program. It also got published in a book by the BBC, How to Be Happy. And basically, in there, they come up with something called the Happiness Manifesto where they've got ten things that they got these, these people to do every day as part of this experiment. That, I mean, there's a whole assessment process in here where you can assess how happy you are. And, and so they used this assessment process to get a measure of how happy they were. They got them to do these ten practices, and then they remeasured it, and it was all part of a TV program as well. It's great TV. And, uh, <laughs> but what was quite interesting is one of the ten is um, cultivating a practice of gratitude. So they got people at the end of each day to write down five things they were grateful for that had happened that day. I mean, there were other things as well, which I mean, it, I find it interesting because a lot of them link to our spiritual practices as Christians. But um, there's proof. You know, there's, there's a lot of proof that shows that gratitude helps you kind of be happier and more resilient in life. So, um, so yeah, for me, David, I mean, just, just in terms of bringing it to, to a close, maybe if the band want to come back up. For me, David is, is, is somebody who, who I find inspiring because he, because he did live with huge paradox in his life. You know, the paradox of huge promise but pain, the paradox of greatness as an individual but also being flawed and also the paradox of cultivating this dependence on God, but also balancing that with doing what he needed to do to make things happen. And I believe that three practices that helped him in that was living a life of deep integrity, of being utterly authentic with God and with others, even when it was unpalatable, saying the unsayable, and cultivating this gratitude for what he did have rather than focusing on what he didn't have even when his experience was pretty horrible. I mean, weave in that a love and a compassion for God. And I think David for me is somebody that I look at and I think he had a sweet and sincere heart despite going through huge adversity in his life. And um, that's why I find him inspirational.